Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, July 27th. Today we have an interview with Jason Greenwald. He is a self-made real estate owner, investor. He kind of describes himself as an investor. He's an investor across multiple asset classes too. So we talk a little bit about stocks, just a I don't know, generally fun discussion. Uh, it was wide ranging. Because learned, yeah, learned a lot about the foreclosure real estate market. That's where he focused his, focuses on. I mean, he goes to what, five a day in a normal time or something like that, maybe even more. He's yeah. pretty avid, loves it. So great, to, great to chat up with him. And then we have our stories after the interview, which mine aren't huge, but I'm talking about the green light capital second quarter letter. Pretty interesting. Has a hilarious sign off. So mm, I'll really? mention that. But then uh, I've also got the Snapchat earnings and some cold takes from our man, Professor Galloway. Oh, no need, to, no need to beat a dead horse, uh, but I guess it'll be, that'll be a fun discussion. Oh, I got, easy, easy got to dunk on because <laughs> he has such bold takes. His, yeah, his Snapchat takes have not aged well, but that's okay. Um, and I got China Crackdown. We're going to talk into that if you've heard that in the news. And then we're going to talk Twitter earnings as well. So do a double dose on the social media. And before we get to our interview... Our friends, 7investing, you can use our code. Check it out, CCM. Uh, I'm blanking on the price, but you get $10 off using our code. So it's a no-brainer if you're signing up. Mm-hmm. Seven, seven stock picks a month from seven different experts. You got PhDs there. Yeah, really smart people. Just listen to our Max Chat Scout interview yes. and ask yourself, do I want seven of these type of analysts helping me out each month, helping my research process, whether you're a big fund or just a small, you know, yeah. individual i mean their interviews on our shows kind of sell the service themselves so go ahead and check those out as well without further ado let's get to the interview welcome to chit chat money on this show hosts ryan henderson and brett schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing as a quick reminder chit chat money is a ccm media group podcast Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Hey, today we are welcomed by Jason Greenwald slash Greenwald Capital. We basically met over Twitter. Yeah, it's been a while. We've been following, you know, communicating on Twitter for a while, but finally get to talk in person. Yeah. Um, so welcome to the show. I appreciate uh, you guys having me. Yeah. And I've uh, had some great guests in the past, so I'm just happy to be on. Yeah, of course. And uh, why don't you kind of give us a bit of the background? So how do you, how'd you get started? And then I guess, what do you do now for anyone that's unfamiliar? Right. So um, I would say my start kind of came in two different um, groups. I graduated college in 2008, uh, May of 2008, and didn't really have anything to do, quite frankly. Uh, I had a pull, I had a poli sci major, um, and I had a family member that had a friend's house that was in foreclosure. So he went to the auction, he purchased it. And I kind of saw the, I saw the dynamics of a forced seller, the banks basically, right? You had like a hundred houses at auction for three 
bidders. And um, so I saw this kind of happen and I didn't have anything else to do truthfully. And I had about $5,000 at the time. So I took my $5,000 and I purchased at the time, um, the prices were just crazy low, but so at the time I purchased a two bedroom, two bath condo. I quickly wholesaled it for 39. So I turned five into 39 and I didn't have to even touch it. Like I just strictly purchased it. I had a buyer who I just kind of hustled and found. Um, I take that 39, you know, you obviously have taxes, so you have about 30. And then at that time, guys, you could buy single family properties for 30, 40 grand that are now worth 400. Like it was unbelievable. So what I did is I took 30, I took 15 and purchased one, took 15 and purchased the other. I had two other partners. I did the purchasing and the selling. So my equity was higher. And so we took those $30,000 purchases and I found um, a buyer who would buy them for 120. Hmm. So basically the five turned into 39 and the 39 turned into 120. And this happened in the span of about a year and a half. Um, And and can we get a timeline on that? This is 08 and 09. This is, um, as uh, this would be late 08 to late 09. So, I mean, that's 15 months. It could have been 18. It could have been 12. I mean, it's close enough. So then I take that 120 and I just kind of did that same thing for literally for from 2008 to 2012. My whole goal was to get um, was to get the capital. I had to have to have the properties I had to have to create a cash generating mechanism. Because at the end, my goal was to be a full-time independent investor. I mean, that was the goal, right? So pretty much from 2008 to 2012, I had about 10 of these kinds of deals where you put in 15 and you have 60 back. And those deals kind of um, kind of laid the way for the rental properties that I have now. Um, and those properties I started to buy around 2013-ish. Um, yeah, so from 2013 to 2018, um, pretty much my goal was to buy the properties, and those uh, and those properties, I was buying at like a 
14 cap rate. Unleveraged. What a cap rate is for anyone. Right. So it's basically just, um, so let's just say you buy a property for a hundred thousand. And once you get all of your rent and you pay off all of your expenses, you have 10,000, your cap is a 10 cap. It's 10 per set, right? So I was buying these properties at like a 14 cap, 15 cap um, properties that, that are not like horrible properties at all. It's just the sentiment was just, was just so low that I kind of took what the, for me, I think taking what the defense hands you is something that has helped me. Um, you know, I'm not trying to be like a John Elway and to swing it in there. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty cognizant. I'm pretty aware of the things I can do and the things that I can't do. So pretty much the journey from 2008 to 2012 was just purchasing these cheap properties selling them off to have the capital in order to be independent enough with the properties I have um, to be a full-time investor. And that's what happened. And so today, today, what is your, what is your day-to-day routine look like? Are you still trying to kind of seek out deals? Yeah. I mean, it's different in today's world with, with the coronavirus, right? In 2008, I was seeing about 140 properties per week. Like I was seeing 20 properties a day, every day, Monday to Sunday, plus auctions. Um, Those times are not here anymore. I would say in a normal non-corona time, my day usually consists of seeing anywhere from uh, 50 to 60 properties a week attending, let's just say, I mean, there's no normal, uh, four to 10 auctions a week. And each auction could have two houses or each auction could have 20 houses. Um, There is no normal here. Um, So at the auctions, I I have two pretty large clients whom I wholesale to. They are in, um, I'll just say they're not in Maryland. Um, Sorry, what is, what is wholesaling the houses to them? Wholesaling pretty much means Jason, one, two, three, Main Street. I would like to buy it. I don't know how the foreclosure auction process works, which is a very complicated process, which I'm sure we'll be chatting um, about. I don't know how the process works. I don't live there. You purchased a property for me and then I hand you a fee. And do they, so do the people that you're wholesaling them to have an idea of the kind of house they want? Or do you just find them at these foreclosure auctions and say, hey, you might. I have, um, it's actually a great question. I send them property lists 
with pictures and like the property, the address, the square feet, um, pretty much all the information that they would have to know to make an informed choice. Okay. Right. So, so that's one thing. And I'll probably wholesale uh, in normal times, maybe 30 properties a year. Um, and then my other options are to purchase to purchase and just hold. And my other option is purchase and flip. Um, I'll probably flip anywhere from, I mean, it's hard to come up with like probably anywhere from five to 12 houses per year. Okay. All right. Yeah. Can uh, can you describe, I guess, why, you know, foreclosure uh, auctions and foreclosure, uh, I guess, just that part of the real estate market instead of just any part of it? And sure. Go through what that process is a bit for anyone that might be interested in getting into that business. 100%. It, I will tell you, every foreclosure process varies from, from, from state to state. So the rules in Georgia are not the rules in Maryland that are not the rules in Texas. So I can only really state the rules that I know of in Maryland. I know at least in one state, they have all of their auctions on one day. And I believe that's Georgia, but please don't quote me on that. Um, In Maryland, it's a very convoluted process. Um, because it goes through a court system and there's bureaucratic aspects to it. So let's just say for argument's sake, you've seen a house, you have a property that, that you are trying to purchase. Um, and it's, and it's July 16th. And typically your deposit is 10% of debt. Right. So, you know, if the debt is 300,000, your deposits 30 grand. Right. Now, here's the issue. Sometimes there are people inside the houses. And just because you buy them at auction doesn't mean that the people leave. And usually they're not in a real attitude to want to leave because why would you? So it's a very messy business. It's it's not like in stocks where you go on E-Trade, you buy a hundred shares of Berkshire Hathaway and right, like the it's over. Um, In my world, it's July 16th that court process could take two months. It could take 12 months. You have no real clue. So you're buying a property and you're comping the property for July 16th. So you're buying a property, you've tied up your cash and you really don't know when you're taking possession of that property because the Lender, they want they want you to pay for it, irregardless if people are in there. They don't care about you guys. 
So it's a very messy business. It's not very straightforward. You don't know really when you take possession. You don't know when you're going to have the property for sale. And you don't know, like, really the comp, right? Like, the comp from July 16th can change some. So I'm just used to dealing in a world that is, um, it's a very um, non-straight Lots of friction. forward business. It's kind of like a deep valley. It's like deep valley investing <laughs> in a stock market, right? You know? It is, man. I mean, you better be right. I, and the problem for me is, is like, I went to my first auction on in around June or July of 2008. I was 21 years old. I was 20 years old. And I saw properties going down every week. Like literally it went from 400 to 395 to 390 to 385. It would be like starting the stock market during the 29 crash. Right. Basically. So I always have that thought in my head that something like that could happen. And like a 2008 is a once in a hundred year thing. But I think just because of, of when I started, I always kind of have that in me. So, um, so I would just say that the foreclosure, the process is a messy process. And you really better know what the hell you're doing. Um, you can really, you can really um, lose money quickly. So, I mean, yeah. I've seen people probably spend a million dollars on deposits and walked from them. So, if I'm understanding it right, you've got basically people in whatever these houses have been told that they need to get out or whatever. They defaulted on their mortgage. Right. And Correct. And now they're selling it to you, but they, they, you could possibly still have people in there. So. Oh yeah, for sure. What happens then? Do you go ask them to leave or do you have to go through? I mean, it's a precarious type of deal, man. Um, it's not something they teach you at, in like school. Um, I would say, I would really love to give you like a stat-based statistic on this. I would say it's a higher percentage now because of the economy, but I would say 80% of the homes I see are occupied. And it's a very hostile type of uh, conversation. I mean, you're knocking on someone's door who hasn't paid for probably, well, in Maryland, you can go probably two, three years and not pay. Um, so you're going to them and saying, sir or ma'am, like, I just purchased your house. And eight to nine times out of 10, they're going to say uh, words that we can't really repeat on this show and slam the door. You know, sometimes they send the dogs on you. I've had some crazy stories, man. Um, what is, what is COVID? Like a lot of the stories I think we probably have to talk about uh, offline. 
uh, <laughs> probably. How's, but um, how's how's COVID changed that at all? Like, are they allowed to stay in there longer now? With uh, I think we talked. Yeah, because of the moratorium. Um, basically, I can tell you in two thousand eight, there were. I mean, there were so. Be- I think now because people know the rules and they know how to kind of extend things that there are more occupied properties in 2008, no one had any idea. I mean, no one knew like what to do. So in 2008, you know, if someone hands you a thing from a blender saying that you owe us leave, then you just leave. But now people, they, um, the the tricks of the trade have been ha, have been spread out. So pretty much you have a couple things. You can do a cash for keys. Um, that works. I can tell you that the um, amount of cash has increased dramatically. I mean, in 2008, you used to be able to give someone 500 bucks, a thousand bucks, and they would leave. Now it's like 10 grand. 10, 15 grand. And if not, it's like, screw you. So I basically deal in a world where I don't know when I'm taking. Now I see, I see every house that I bid on. So I know if it's vacant or occupied. So how expensive would it be if you had to go through the court system? It's just such it's just such a pain in the ass, man. I mean, how expensive is it? I have attorneys who are family friends. Uh, you definitely have to put a risk premium on that. Um, how much of a risk premium? I wish I had the answer because I truly don't know. But you better put it in your margin of safety that someone could just like stay there for a year. And here you are paying property taxes. You're paying your debt if you have any on the properties. So it's a very different world than the world of E-Trade, Apple shares, 100 shares, purchase, right? Yeah, it doesn't sound too passive. It's a whole other world, man. It's a whole other world. But, But I found the greatest deals though. So I think when you have that much complexity, um, that's where you can find some opportunity. Right. And you mentioned, and everyone talks about this with real estate, about using debt. How do you use debt when financing any transactions? And then I guess if you don't use debt, why not? So I'm the old, I'm like the strange guy in the group. I have not ever used leverage before. Um, what got me to my point was my my reinvestment rate from 2008, especially until 2012, was so it was crazy high. I mean, I was living off nothing, right? So. I don't like, I hate to quote you what my reinvestment rate, maybe it was 80%. I mean, pretty much, I mean, like pretty much 
besides paying taxes, I was, I was reinvesting everything. Um, in terms of the rentals, I have not taken a penny out of them. Um, for me, that's just a choice. Um, my returns would be certainly a lot more gaudy if I had used, um, leverage. But also the thing is this, you know, in 2008, banks were crippled. One, two, dude, I was 20 years old. I had $5,000. I didn't have anything to hand them. Right. And three, um, the properties that I, the properties that I were purchasing were great in terms of a quick, I guess it's a, a, Buffett style cigar butt. But the problem is, is the rents were not like basically in that group, like people just didn't pay rent. So like you could have used leverage, but your debt service coverage would have been tough because I mean, I have so many stories about taking tenants to court. Um, So I could have, but to be completely honest, the, the rents that were coming in were so sporadic that to cover the debt would have been like, my stress would have been crazy high. And my goal was to not um, like my goal was to be independent. Um, and I knew that it would take me, you know, it's taken me 13 years. Um, so I didn't use debt primarily because of the properties that I was purchasing the, the earnings or rent um, were just so like, maybe 20% of the people paid, you know? So it was just, it just, the properties I had didn't match up with a levered type of deal. Right. Cause I guess that makes sense. If, if the risk of say permanent loss on one property is decently high, it's not something you want to, Right. I mean, I could have easily gotten, you know, a 50% LTV because I was purchasing them so cheap. But when you have to take people to court all the time, you know, like it just really would have created a, a, a true hassle. Um, the properties I have now are definitely, um, in areas where that's not a, problem all right you want so you you also invest in public market equities which we're going to talk about i guess more in the second half but i'm curious and a lot of people uh i won't belabor the point because everyone kind of knows what real estate is like right now with all the Mm -hmm. prices so i'm curious which market or which asset you found is harder harder to stay patient in real estate or equities because 
it feels like the FOMO or the fear of missing out is a lot higher in real estate, but maybe I'm wrong. Oh, I think real estate lends itself to long-term holding. I think the liquidity of stocks where you can just go on your E-Trade and sell 100 shares of Apple really makes people um, kind of jump in, jump out. Um, The very essence of the properties is that you have to go through listing the house and, you know, cleaning it and going through home inspections and going through appraisals and doing all this kind of stuff. So real estate for me kind of, um, and I was almost long-term to begin with. Um, I really don't let the FOMO get inside my head. I mean, it's hard to because of Twitter, right? I mean, like, do you have, um, you know, things being thrown at you. Um, I would say for me, um, just because of the liquidity aspect of stocks and how, plus it's free now. I mean, on E-Trade in 2008, I think, you know, they charged you. Um, So for me, I would say real estate really lends itself to a more long-term um, um, uh, m- more of a mindset, long-term holding right. mindset. All right. So then what is your best and worst purchase real estate wise? I would say the, the purchases from 2008 to 2012, um, especially the condo that I bought for 5,000 and, and then I sold for 39. Um, I probably have had, um, probably 10 deals where they were four X, um, in the matter of about a year. So that's pretty good. Um, the rentals I have now, I was buying them at about a, a, 14 cap or a 15 cap and they're now selling for about a five cap. So I would say those are probably my best deals. The worst deals quite frankly were the ones I were the were the houses I sold too early. Um whether it was I didn't have the cash to purchase something else or you know i had about four or five houses with two other um with two other investors and sometimes you have too many cooks in the kitchen and we had to sell those at at 2018 and i probably would have made probably two times more if I hadn't. So um, knock on wood, I haven't lost on any real estate deals. It would just, for me, it would just be selling too early. All right. So you're saying never sell. <laughs> Let your winners real ride. Oh man. I mean, that sounds like such a, I would say, I would say here's the issue, right? Is then you have to use that capital again. So, you know, and plus it also means that, that you have to be right 
three times. You have to be right when you purchased it. You have to be right when you sell it. And then you have to be right when you purchase the new house or company. So I would say that staying put has helped me um, more often than trying to time the market. That makes no. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, do you want to add that? Yeah, we're going to have a quick ad break, and then I want to pick your brand about public equities as well in the second half. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. Okay, welcome back in. So we, we're kind of going to try to cross over to the public equities here. So I'm curious, since you're in both markets, I guess, what what parallels are there? And then how has real estate investing helped you analyze public market companies? Um, it's a great question. Uh, real estate has helped me evaluate public market companies in the following ways. Um, in real estate, unlike stocks, you know, where it's a Facebook or a Google or, you know, fill in the blank. Um, you don't really have 20 and 30% earnings growth, um, which means in quick terms, you don't have earnings to bail you out if you purchase a stock. Um, you don't have the earnings in a in real estate that you do in stock. So the in real estate, the money is truly made on the buy. Um, and you could say the same thing pertaining to, to public market as well. But because of the craziness of public markets, you can purchase a, pro, a, a stock you know, 20% too high, and then the stock runs 20% more, and then you seem smart. Um, in real estate, it really doesn't work like that. Um, I mean, my growth of rents is pretty modest. So for me, it really put an emphasis on, on the buy. Um, I believe there are parallels. I mean, a house is just like a company, right? You have revenue, you have, you have expenses, you have these types of things, but they're kind of like apples and oranges. I mean, they're 
both sweet fruit, but they're pretty different. Um, I would say, um, I think for me, it was beneficial to get the real estate part in first. Um, I think that really helped me because also, I mean, I could see a hundred houses guys and not purchase one of them. So just because you're seeing these houses and you're going to auctions, that doesn't mean that, that you buy them. Um, they don't hand you the, they don't hand you the bid price prior to. Right. So that opening bid could be 20,000. That opening bid could be 500,000. So it's really taught me to be extremely patient. Um, it's really taught me to, when you see very large opportunities where the risk is in your favor to bet quite heavily. Um, I mean, I don't buy a ton of properties for me, but when I see something pretty large and pretty right, I kind of, I just, it's just, some people have a problem pulling the trigger. And um, in my world, when you see something big and right, you just have to plow in. All right. So if you had to choose one of those asset classes, so either stocks or real estate to have mm. all your money in, which would you pick? <laughs> to be honest with you, if you told me, and so all of my properties, guys, um, I, I manage them like um, personally. Right. So I don't have a management team that handles that. With that being said, because of the BS that tenants hand you, and I wish one day, I wish that I could post on Twitter the crazy text, you know, <laughs> that I get at. Hey, we saw that. We oh, saw my that picture you posted. Dude, that's just one of them. <laughs> I mean, I wish I could post. So, so for me, guys, I need to take. Like, I need to get paid for that. Um, that's very different than me sending my capital to Omaha and saying, Buffett, you know, play around. Um, I would, I would be extremely comfortable putting a hundred percent of everything I had into the same pieces of real estate that I have currently. But I, I, I have to preface this by saying that I'm really a firm believer of, of really taking what the defense hands you. Um, and right now the defense is not handing me those properties. So that's why I've jumped into, to, to the, public markets. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess to transition maybe some 
companies that operate in real estate that are trading in the public markets. There's a lot of talk about iBuying right now. How sure. have these iBuyers and I guess the tech companies coming in, this would be Redfin, Compass, although I'm not exactly sure what Compass does, uh, Open Door, Zillow. Right. How have they affected the market uh, that you operate in in the last few years, if at all? You know, a lot of people ask me about Redfin. Um, I come at it from a very different angle than a stock person. I'm a real estate agent. Um, and, you know, I have my license in DC and Maryland. I have to preface this by saying that I'm more of a part-time agent. But the the issue I see with Redfin is if you are a good agent, you have no real incentive to join there. I mean, I, I have spoken to a couple agents who work there. They work their ass off. And I know a, I could name, well, naming them. I could think of 20 agents off the top of my head who do one deal, two deals per month, who would make four or five times what they would be making at Redfin. And they would be working about a quarter of what they would be. So for me, I see Redfin as a good place for someone to start who is green, who doesn't have a network, who wants to see how the process of buying and selling a house, how that whole process happens. It's really a good, um, I mean, that to me would be the greatest source. Number two would be a part-time agent who's 60 to 65 years old that doesn't really want to like retire, but wants to work some. Um, but if you are an experienced agent, or even if you're just a good agent, or even if you're just a crappy agent, but you have very high quality clients, you have no reason to join them. I mean, they, I mean, you will end up working three times as much and you'll probably make a quarter. So I think what's going to be very interesting with Redfin is the agent attrition, because what I could see happening is you're a green agent, you join Redfin, you hustle, you find your own network, and then you leave them. Um, I also think buying and selling a house is a very personal kind of thing. Generally, the agents that people pick are friends of theirs, people that they trust. And when you do it with Redfin, and I could be wrong on this. So if I'm wrong, I, I am sorry. But um, once you join Redfin, I mean, the, the purchaser or the seller of the house, they don't get to choose who they work with. So in reality, you're dealing with someone 
who frankly just doesn't care in quotes as much as someone who is a friend with the person. Um, I can also tell you the big time flippers. These are guys that probably flip anywhere from 20 to a hundred houses per year. They only pay their agents one point, you know, maybe 1.5. So I am not as gung ho on Redfin as a lot of people. I think what's going to happen. I mean, I could be totally wrong. I know their CEO is great. Um, hey, you're coming out of Seattle company. You know, we got to, I know, man, I, I know I'm coming at you guys hard, but I'm just trying to like spit truth. Um, I mean, pretty much what you're going to get is green agents that don't know what the hell they're truly doing. And I guess at some point, all agents are green and they don't know what they're doing. But um, I think Redfin, it's a great tool for someone who's green, who just got their license. But if you are even green and you have through, you know, cousins or family, you have a network. I mean, there are plenty of small brokerages out there. I mean, hell, the brokerage that I'm with, um, where they'll offer you a, you know, a, a 90-10 split, you know, which means you would keep 90% of the uh, deal. So I just see, I don't see Redfin as rose colored glasses as FinTwit. Okay. What about, what about the iBuyers? Zillow, I guess Redfin's doing this a bit. Zillow, open door, especially. Does that model work at all? Or is it just automated? Same thing. Housework. Is the iBuying where they are just like, Flipping houses. They offer you like the the company offers to buy. Yeah, themselves. I think that's tantamount to crazy. Um, comping a house is more than just a formula. Um, I would be very suspicious, and and I don't and. I could be totally wrong on this. I would love to see the spreads of what prices they are, the prices that Zillow and Redfin are offering and what the house is actually worth. Um, I have probably seen 40 to 50,000 houses since 2008. And I have learned something about how to comp a house every single time. And unless it's a process that you have done and a process that you have real skin in the game, I would be very, um, I'm not trying to be too harsh here, but like I would be very curious and skeptical to what those spreads are truly like it's like even to us it sounds dangerous from a business model perspective because i guess you just don't know yeah why. inventory a lot of inventory risk and, well, but also guys like houses like 
comps of houses can change from across the street. Like you can have a house that's one, two, three main street. And you go across the street, which is one, two, two or one, two, four. Right. And because of the way the backyard is or the way, or let's just say they have a driveway or not, or the view, or if they have a walkout basement, I mean, these are the things that unless you know what the hell you're doing and unless you've been burned on, like I know in certain neighborhoods, you have to have a driveway. I mean, if you don't have a driveway, your house will go from 400 to 370. Um, And I I just like, sorry guys. I think the iBuyers quote, if I remember correctly, they quote usually really low prices, like whatever, like 70%. Right, people have been anecdotally given out that they've been 20% below every other offer right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's great. I would be very, this business in my mind is a good mom and pop business, like kind of someone like me. Um in fact, everyone that goes to the auctions are basically mom and pop. Now, mom and pop could mean that they're doing 100 houses per year. I mean, 100 houses per year is a lot of work, guys. I mean, that's doing eight per month. Um, I would just be very skeptical of how they're comping them and the algorithms involved with comping them. Um it's just not something that gives me a warm and fuzzy feeling inside. Right. All right. We've talked a ton about real estate. I've learned a ton. I think the listeners will too. We're going to close things out with a little Disney talk. Um, yes, sir. Well, first I'll have to say is that you bought in the spring. and I think you probably bought from me because that was the stock. <laughs> Sorry about that, bro. You know, I had a, making some like, decent investments in other stuff, but oh, I'm sure you did. I mean, and you could have bought anything. You could have bought anything at that time. Uh, but what gave you the confidence to buy in the spring of last year? And what is the thesis going forward for Disney to own it for the long term? I will preface this by saying I sold FedEx at like 125. So it's not all peaches and cream over here. Um, for me, March 2020, and like, I didn't have a playbook. Um, I don't think anyone did. Um, in my mind, March 2020 was the time to buy as high quality stock as as humanly possible. Whether that was Berkshire, um, you know, for me. Disney is a thesis that has the best IP that the world has. Disney has a trust with parents that I believe is almost is almost irreplaceable. Disney, I mean, people go to hot and humid Orlando spend $100 for a crappy lunch, spend spend 
thousands on hotels and food and clothes and, you know, and like, and this is considered a right of passage. So I didn't come into Disney with any financial thesis. It was all brand. And I felt like, um, and I don't remember the exact price I bought it. It was probably close to like a hundred, like $95 or a hundred dollars. I felt like, and I hate to use this term because it sounds cliche ish. I felt like it was a once in a generational opportunity. Um, I think as long as Disney keeps that trust that parents have and, you know, the, a parent's most prized possession is their children and they will plop their children in front of Disney plus or a Disney show or a movie for hours and the content that the kids are are receiving is is not even a question in the parents minds where i don't know if parents would plop their kids in front of twitter for two or three hours or youtube for two or three hours or facebook for two or three hours or so they have that certain trust um pretty much i think that mouse is worth a ton of money and it's probably worth more than any of the it's probably worth more than any person truly thinks it is so i think for me the thesis was high quality brand um they have a warm, cozy blanket feeling with their customers. And right, like they like they have to keep that going. Um, if they have a problem and their parents can't trust the content, then Disney has a huge problem on their hands. But you know, when you see on Twitter people crying when they're going to Disney World again, I mean, to me, that's all I truly like. They're crying. That's it. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's it right there. So I don't have any real financial DCF to hand you, but I think for all the reasons that I have stated is why disney plus works yeah it seems like a permanent part of society yeah i I mean to me like it's all one big revolving circle the trust the ip the i mean so um for me it was it just kind of like screamed out at me and saying like, you seem cheap here. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like hindsight, I know this may be crushing Brett right now, but it seemed, <laughs> like, I, uh, it seemed like such a fat pitch just cause all you, you didn't have to do any work. You could just say like, this is permanent. And it's cheap. Yeah. 
I mean, Disney can't, right? They have to keep that moat open. And, right? And, and as, as soon as they do something to screw that up, which I hope never happens, then we have a problem. But as long as they have that trust, that warm blanket feeling, um, I think that brand is worth a tons of money. Not to mention Disney Plus had impeccable timing. I mean, it couldn't have come. Yeah, and to be honest with you, I don't think I even knew about. I mean, I, I think I knew some about Disney Plus then, but that really wasn't even in my mindset. Right. Um, yeah, it's just a cherry on the top. Right. For me, it just seemed like the time to buy as high quality as I could and something that I felt like I could put my hands around. But I mean, I'm pretty cognizant of the things I can do and pretty cognizant of the things that I can't. So for me, it seemed like a pretty fat pitch. Um, I guess time will tell on that one. Right. All right. Let's get the wrap up questions. First one, what is one financial saying that you disagree with? Yeah. So I, um, I'm going to cop out and just say like kind of a couple of things because of my lack of really a formal financial education. I think there's not one way to do it. I mean, I think you're investing. I think your personality and how you invest have, have a pretty high correlation. Um, uh, so I would say there's a lot of financial things that I don't truly agree with. Um, buy high and sell higher. Okay. Nice. How about that one? Yeah, that is, uh, that, I don't think we've heard that one before. What's, uh, yeah. so what's the reasoning behind that? Well, it's the first one I came up with <laughs> because why would you just buy low and sell high? I don't feel like I'm capable of figuring out like when you buy high and sell higher, I just think it, 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 it just rubs me kind of a wrong way. I, I, I just think like just buy right. And if Nothing changes with the aspects of the business. Hold on. Buy right and sit tight. Exactly. All right. What's, what is one piece of advice you have for anyone that's considering a career in real estate investing? Yeah. Um, I had this question actually asked on a podcast yesterday, and it was tough to answer because the time in which I started was so different. Um, I would say if you want to invest in real estate right now, I would be quite careful. Um, I'm a big proponent. I think I've said it on this pod like three times, like take what the, take what the defense hands you. Um, 
I mean, I have sat on my hands. I have not bought a rental property for myself in almost three years. So I have essentially been sitting on my hands. So the one piece of advice I would say is don't buy the first property that you see. Um, You will probably see hundreds of them. And if you don't see hundreds of them, you probably didn't see enough of them. Um, I would also say that if you really want to start purchasing, rehabbing properties, it would be, um, it would behoove you to have at least not some home construction knowledge to have someone that you trust because contractors can, can really, can really, uh, I mean, they can really screw you over. Um, they can really hold your feet to the coals in terms of pricing and they can just like take $10,000 and just leave. So I would be really, um, I would be extremely cognizant of who you use for rehabbing. I would think I see purchasing houses as a punch card mentality. So you don't have to buy the first property that you see. The house has no feelings for the price that you paid for it. So just be patient. And if you kind of understand what you're looking for, your opportunity will come, but it takes time. All right. That's a great way to wrap it up. All right. Yeah. For, uh, for any of our listeners that want to see more of your stuff, get in touch with you. What's the best place to do that? What's the- I would just say on Twitter, guys, um, my my handle is is at J Greenwald 86 at Greenwald Capital. And you can feel free to uh, DM me Perfect. anytime. Awesome. All right. Thank you for your time, Jason. Enjoyed it. I appreciate you all having me, guys. Of Thanks again. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) All blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right, welcome back in. Thanks again to Jason Greenwald for coming on. Enjoyed it. Uh, but we're going to get to our stories, and I'm going to kick things off with the Greenlight Capital second quarter letter. So Greenlight Capital is David Einhorn's hedge fund, uh, for anyone that's unfamiliar. And the partnership was down 2.9% this quarter. It's had a bit of a rough decade in relation to the S&P 500. I think the S&P since 2012 is up like more than 200% and they're up like 60%. So it's not been great for him. It's supposedly like a long short equity fund, but it's turned into this kind of just macro 
predictor fund. I feel like well, that's his, like his letters are at least he he loves talking about it each quarter, right? Yeah, it's. I feel like that's everyone was talking about it on Twitter. There's like a life cycle of an investor. You go from a great equity only investor to having absurd takes or not absurd having uh, takes on the overall landscape of the economy but it's tough to resist being the take machine because people are going to listen to you if you have a good track record Uh, that's something i guess (laughs) well i mean he got famous through shorting lehman brothers before the great financial crisis so it's like everyone's i imagine he gets asked all the time what he thinks of the economy or inflation Mm -hmm. or stuff like that and so uh and that was pretty much the focus of his second quarter letter um and he did so, for reference, this Greenlight Capital used to have over $12 billion in assets under management. At one point today, it sits around less than $1.5 billion. So, it has not been a great portfolio for him, or sorry, performance for him. But I'm not sure that he's that bothered by it. I think he's doing well enough now. And reading the quarterly, quarterly commentary, he seems like he's fine and happy. He doesn't really care. Uh, but anyway, he... A lot of the stuff he talked about was basically inflation-oriented. So he said, The majority of investors today accept the Fed's premise and believe that inflation is topping and the Fed has the situation under control. The, his uh, Basically, their stance was that it's not transitory. Yeah, uh, the bond... Well, and just... Uh, you can see that the investor stance is that it is transitory because typically the bond market, there was that cool chart that... I forget who posted it. That cool chart of the bond, the interest rates on the bond market or treasuries or whatever. It's a bit out of my league, but it, the interest rates in that kind of tracked the, the the changes in inflation over the last decade, but now inflation has skyrocketed and interest rates haven't gone at all. So the, the investors at large think it's a, it's a one-time blip, but he disagrees. Yeah, he goes on to say, we remain positioned on the other side as there are, and we believe there will continue to be too many dollars chasing too few goods and services. Uh, and then he also goes through several companies in his long portfolio, but he wraps up his letter with a wonderful quote from Steve Burns, the former CEO of Lordstown Motors, and says, I don't think anybody thought we had actual orders. That's just not the nature of this business. I don't I don't know it's, what that means. What what does that even mean? You remember when he was on CNBC and they got caught in the scam and He then, said that? Jesus. And then they said, you said you had very serious orders. And he goes, no one thought these were serious orders. That's not how this business works. <laughs> it was just, yeah, what, what business is it? I thought the business was selling cars. It's, uh, he also ends with bucks and six, which congrats, man. <laughs> I guess, yeah, don't. Uh, yeah, I was re- listening to some Buffett, one of those, sorry, not Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, um, you know, the old investor meetings yeah. that are on uh, in podcast form. And there was one from 04. And there was a uh, Boston guy who was like, go Sox, World Series champs, home of the champs. And it's like, dude, we all got our cities, man. Yeah. No need to uh, no need to bring your sports takes into the, like the, you know, the annual meeting. And I, I just remember Buffett going, good. All right. Cool. Uh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if you read the quarterly letter or if you read any of his, but it feels like a guy that doesn't really care that much anymore. You care about what? like public perception or performance for that matter or maybe he's willing to take the super long view and get right i mean you think about the lehman stuff like the returns in 08 for him probably made uh enough to make his all-time returns look good 
Uh, yeah, it's hard to tell. I don't know enough about him, but I, saw I don't think anyone was... should care about what anyone else thinks of him. But he's, you know, you gotta you gotta balance that with being on a crusade mission that isn't going anywhere. You know what I mean? You yeah, gotta, it's tough. That's a tough balancing act because he has that conviction, but when does he know if he's wrong? And is this a great example? And I mean, this is the exact the prime examples that tell me or discourage me from having some macro thesis because if it can't work for them, it's like that meme. It's like, well, it didn't work for them, but it could work yeah, for us. Yeah, it could work. Yeah, it's cla- Yeah, that Arrested Development stuff. I, Don't fight the Fed. Does that apply here? Uh, because he's basically bashing the Fed for not defining transitory enough. Right, right. Kind of the, the Fed. Countering and, their take. Yeah, kind of. I don't know. These gripes are interesting because – you can say don't fight the Fed, but then the response from someone, and who knows if they're right or wrong, they, the response is, oh, just wait, you know? And are you just going to say, oh, just wait forever, or are they eventually going to be right? I, I have no idea. And it's kind of, I mean, it's a bit scary, but it's also like, gosh, I don't know if you, how do I even think about, like, you know, I mean, it's it's so unpredictable. This is also a great letter if you want to learn how to uh, how to color poor performance in a good light. Well, he like he can write with sass. If I remember reading a few, oh, yeah. he's very good at writing in with some sass. A lot of passive aggression in here. Yeah, yeah, he he's very good at that. I mean, he t- he brought up the deli though that 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 hundred million dollar deli. They're always a fun read. Yeah, they are they are a good read. But I always think like, man, are you just I guess this comes to the saying that a lot. This is this is the cliche saying too of, uh, do you invest how you think the world works, or do you invest how it actually works? Because I think maybe a lot of people with his view are getting caught up in how they believe things are, and that's different than how how things actually are. But who knows? Maybe maybe the maybe it's flipped, and maybe they're about to get vindicated. This is also why I say. It looks like he doesn't care anymore because he has so much sass in these quarterly letters. It's like you wouldn't be sassy if you were underperforming perpetually. Yeah. But like most people want it, but he is. Yeah. Yeah. He. I guess he – I mean if you're in his position, you don't care what anyone else thinks. You probably don't care about outside capital and withdrawals and stuff like that. Yeah. I imagine a lot of it's his money now. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, it, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how – from the sidelines, how, how this fund, how I, what it was it called, Greenlight does over the next five, ten years. What's your story? Uh, okay, China crackdown. Uh, it is continuing. It is getting, I mean, so bad out there. Maybe this is the time now, if you're using the FinTwit indicator, it seems like everyone, ourselves included, are in consensus saying uh, it's time to, uh, everyone's like, no, 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 you can't, everyone's now, oh, you can't touch Chinese stocks. Maybe that's an indication to go along, but that's really, that's a tough way to uh, make an investment thesis. But last week, and then continuing on top of it, there's been plenty of other things besides this. There's been reports out of China that the tutoring and education companies may be forced to go nonprofit and will be unable to trade publicly. So all of these <laughs> industry stocks got absolutely hammered. Uh, there's one with the ticker G O T U. The I, I couldn't pronounce the name, so it's just G O T U was down 95% year to date. Now Oriental Education and Tech is down 90% year to date, and then Tall Education Group is down 95% year to date. Totally getting crushed. I mean, if you had those positions, 
It, it's so hard to recover from that. It's going to be very, very difficult for them. We've talked a lot about the risk of the CCP from an investing standpoint. And CCP, if anyone doesn't know, is just the Chinese Communist Party. Flipping that around, we know that there's the threats of the CCP, but what potential downside regulatory threats most scare you when investing in the U.S.? I'll go first, and it's mainly just from reduced harm stuff where there's products and the easiest one to look at it is probably like Coca-Cola, where there's been all these regulations around soda, a lot of it local. You know, trying to get people off of soda and stuff like that, and that's likely Product their specific business. taxes. Yeah, taxes and stuff like that. If anything is perceived as unhealthy, and I think Coca Cola is unhealthy, whatever. No matter what Buffett says, uh, you know, he, he always says, "I live long." I uh, and I had Coca Cola, but I mean, come on, man, you know that's a little disingenuous. But the uh, that that risk seems the heaviest to me in the United States. Well, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, but it's never like. I mean, here's the thing is like going nonprofit and the education sector might be good versus I actually haven't really thought it through, but like there, there could be benefits to that for society. Um, but it's just makes it so hard to invest uh, yeah. in China. I, I just don't see anything like that ever happening. Well, they shut Here, down. I mean, they shut down the for profit colleges like in 2014 in the U.S. Yeah. What so they're not for? Uh, I'm unfamiliar with this. They're I think not for yeah. I don't know now. the story. It just goes straight to their. Uh, I think they just got uh, pension I, fund. I don't know this. Is. I, I don't know the. Um, I don't know the story too well. But people have been throwing around the ideas, or sorry, the the old news stories that yeah. I think it was in 2014. Something happened in the U.S. where the for-profit colleges got they got hammered like this. It just I don't know, like a full-blown shutdown of a sector doesn't seem realistic if anything it's sort of just like gradual tax increases yeah. or making the competitive environment or the operating environment diff- more difficult for businesses yeah. ultra I, is like the perfect example yeah the i think the Although difference counterproductive. yeah the difference between the ccp and maybe the u.s is in the ccp at least from my standpoint i have no idea what's going to happen but in the u.s you can kind of you can understand what the threats are before you underwrite investment. You and you know it's not just going to change on a whim. Most most of the time, sometimes it can. But yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think. I don't. I don't really think that much about the regulatory threats in the U.S. Uh, I don't know. Some. It's. I mean, it happens. It happens. Like, do you see a sector being completely shut down? I mean, there, I can't think of one. I think you. You, you know. I think the data stuff. People, the data, data collection stuff. But that, even that, that could, was I, done private. I mean, you could say Apple took the initiative on that. Yeah, but I still think there's that threat of, of uh, especially, I mean, kind of like how Europe's done it, although that's it seems kind of half-assed. I, I think the regulatory threat from the U.S. is a lot higher than, than you might think. I mean, there's a lot of stuff with real estate, like where, you know, local laws, whatever. I mean... There's, I mean, there's a lot of laws out there in the U.S. I mean, this is kind of overhead, but I don't know. There's, I think the clear difference, though, is that in the U.S., like, the the laws are there and it has to pass these processes or whatever, you know, the whole... The you whole, kind of have a good idea of what's going to happen. Like, mm-hmm. you can tell early on. Or you can tell what the threats are. Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to get to my story, which is Snapchat earnings. Uh, so... 
they kind of crushed this week. They reported, I think, on July 22nd, and they reached 293 million global daily active users, 982 million in revenue for the quarter, which is up 116% year over year, up 66% versus Q1. Um, they had over 100 million in EBITDA, which I don't know, take that with a grain of salt, I guess. And then they said the iOS change didn't have nearly the impact they thought it would. So I guess they're seeing great engagement. Um, I mean, just all around a pretty solid quarter. And so, uh, of course, some old Professor Galloway takes had to resurface this week as well. And on Twitter, I saw a video uh, of him speaking on CNBC. And in 2018, he said, Snap is a great company, a great product, and it's the walking dead. It will be acquired within the next 18 months for a fraction or a shadow of its current price right now. Obviously, this did not age well at all. But it did. aged worse. Well, worse or better than our Tesla takes. Just as bad. (laughs) About the same. About the the same returns, about 10x. (laughs) Yeah, obviously, Professor Galloway is known for some cold takes. Uh, But is this a great example of what... Because it did sound smart at the time. Like, they were getting pressure from all... Basically, Facebook was starting there was to dominate that, video ads, or that was the consensus view. There was the Kylie Jenner thing, right? That yeah. sent it totally in the tank. Uh, but is this a great example of why people should never speak in certainties? Because if you were guessing in 2018, you would not have guessed these returns for Snapchat. Yeah, obviously. and if you looked at their user numbers, I believe it was a lot less healthy than right now. I mean, it was a risk investing in them then. And I think it's still a big risk investing in them now. What's their, what are they at? Greater than 30 times the last 12 month revenue. Mm-hmm. Never generated true free cash profits. I think their adjusted EBITDA was like, it, I saw a tw- tweet or something like 250 million of it, of the 100 million was stock based compensation. Shares have doubled, I think. Maybe not doubled. I mean, I, I don't think he's that far off. He just was way too. You know, he exaggerated it maybe, but at the time, the anecdotal evidence would have had you believe that Snapchat was dead. And that kind of, I really try to avoid doing that and just looking at the data because there's a lot of things with anything consumer facing where you can pick up one piece of anecdotal evidence and you'd be like, oh, this person doesn't like it. Oh, dude, this company's screwed. But if you look at the data, they're doing fine. So did the, did Snapchat's performance over the last few like exclude multiple expansion like the operating performance has it surprised you? Hmm, it's tough to tell. I mean, the people are, people our age seem to like it a lot, but I never really, I never got it as like a long term product. I thought it was just messaging for a lot of people, but it's a closed ecosystem, so it's hard for anyone outside of it. You know what I mean? It's like there's no, it doesn't really relate with other apps that much, right? Or am I wrong? Uh, yeah. What do you mean relate? Like, you know how Twitter and you can... Like cross-sharing? Yeah. yeah. You can't really cross-share on there. It is kind of a closed ecosystem. But so, so for, I guess people like the discovery stuff that they've added more than more so than I thought. Uh, but does this also go to show that maybe ad spend will be more fragmented on the platform? Like, will it have more diverse platforms than we initially then, thought? It I won't mean, just be Facebook and Google. Yeah, I think there's plenty of spots. Yeah, Fa- I mean, Facebook and Google are clearly, well, I think they probably are the best at targeting and they're perceived at being the best too. So people are going to allocate budgets there until it doesn't, until it stops working 
uh, and it might never stop working, but if you snapped your fingers and Facebook went away, yeah, there'd be a giant effect, but there's a lot of places that ad dollars could flow because there's so many, I mean, isn't there just a ton of inventory and like CTV podcasts for us, um, video games, a lot of ad inventory that just doesn't even get filled right now. Yeah, especially on mobile. For sure, for sure. I, I mean, but that's a huge hole if they go away. I mean, Facebook and Google are the dominant ones, but eh, I don't know. But we'll get to Twitter, I guess, to and roll into Twitter. Yeah. Um, their ad targeting seems so atrocious, but I mean, they continue to put up good numbers as well. That would be good, fun to go over them. Right now, just for reference, EV to sales is 12, uh, so a little bit less than uh, Snapchat. So it's obviously a bargain. They're going to, right? This, that's kind of an example of the relative valuation and how that can get you in trouble. But uh, let's go through the numbers quick. $1.19 in sales, up 74% year over year. And monetizable daily active users reached $206 million, up 11% year over year. Rolling out tip jar, ticketed spaces, and super follows. Renewed the partnership with the NFL, and they're going to have live NFL spaces coming in 2021. Sales and marketing expenses, $302 million. SBC expenses, $178 million, 15% of revenue, but they bought back $334 million in stock in Q1. However, share count continues to rise, which is just, I, I nothing makes me angrier than seeing that. Although we hold, although we own Autodesk right now, so I, I don't know what's, uh, maybe I'm a hypocrite. Yeah, buying back stock and then giving out stock feels a little, I don't know. Like it just feels like a waste of money at that point, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, yeah, it. They talk a lot about the spaces and a lot of the new features, but every single time they think about new initiatives, I always think it's just going to end up coming back to its core business or its core function. It's gonna yeah. Be. They got to get the ad targeting right. That's it. Yeah, right? Isn't that the only like, thing? I'm I'm just thinking about the user experience. Like spaces was cool for the first few weeks, but I'm pretty much over it. Yeah, the the fleets was a total flop, <laughs> but they recognized that early, which is good. I mean, yeah, maybe they're gonna have maybe only like two or three of these. Of maybe they launch ten products over the next few years. Maybe only two or three stick, but that's better than doing nothing like they used to do. Um, their subscription product seems not great, though. They're kind of like giving people options for thirty second like limits to edit your tweet, and it's like why would I pay for that? Maybe there's some other things on there, but wouldn't the subscription product just be no ads or am I just totally mistaken? But the ads are so bad that they don't even contribute to anything. Yeah. I don't know how a freemium model would work here, but I mean, I would pay to have access to Twitter, I think. But if there's, they will never do that. But if there's, yeah, if you could only had to pay, I would pay. But if there was a free, if there's a free one, I'm just gonna go because the I'm really just using it for the core feed functions. Yeah. Maybe getting maybe pay to get rid of topics and trending for you. Oh. Because yeah. trending for you, if we could just eliminate that, I'd pay five bucks a month for that. Uh, all right, we'll wrap things up with the Twitter one. What would have to happen to get you interested in Twitter stock? Dorsey out? It won't happen. No, I don't think that's that much of a help. I, th- I think he's pretty. Bitcoin's going to solve world peace guy? I don't think he's that influential on Twitter's business, it sounds like. It sounds like it's kind of Ned Seagal and Kayvon, if I'm, I think that's his name. They're the core. They're actually doing the kind of core the product stuff. Yeah. 
I just don't think I can get interested in Twitter. It's just such a catch. It's like a catch twenty two. Like they've got they've built a great platform for sharing information and ads just make it worse. And what are you gonna advertise that doesn't detract from the experience? Well, I mean you're reading messages. Yeah, but it's I think yeah, promoted tweets are useless. I mean, remember like, when we tried those out? But I think mean, about they, like they companies, get no return. Companies trying to push products on here, it's just guaranteed to detract from the user experience. Maybe books or something like that. Promoted tweets. Yeah, they don't work very well. Well, okay, those are tend to be totally random and not at all interesting. Like I never have any interest in some of those promoted tweets. Yeah, I mean, just standard sponsored video ads seems yeah. the right way to do it. But you could see a world where, um, how, how, how would I say it, where the stock does well over the long term, this business does well over the long term, if they can get the ad targeting right. But just betting on that at this valuation, I don't know. But you kind of come back and say, all right, this feels like a very durable asset. Yeah, I'll be, I, I spend tons of time on there. It's just hard to monetize. But I've thought that for three years, and I still don't think it's changed. Yeah, it's... Yeah. What's your last story? All right, all right. Two quick takes, anecdotal evidence type stuff here. So, yeah, it's just going to be streaming stuff. I know this always turns into like recommendations, but if there was box office futures, if you kind of get what that would mean, where they could throw out a price and you go like buy a call option or buy a put or whatever on it. On a specific movie? On a specific movie. I would buy them on Dune after seeing that preview. And then I'd go all in on that because you'd probably go out right now like 200 million maybe 150 million i think it's that could be the movie that really gets people back to the theaters um in mass although it seems like them streaming it on hbo max like it, it might detract from that i might just watch it is it home. like a do you have to pay is it one of those things that you have to pay for specifically no no it's, it's included on hbo max I think it's like the ad free one. Kind of no, thing? it's included with your HBO Max subscription, ad free. That's how they've been doing these movies like once every two weeks. It's pretty nice. And that comes with my other topic. This that strategy seems great and it seems like HBO Max is already again, this is anecdotal, so I just said don't listen to this type of stuff, but it seems like it's like already better than Netflix. I'd agree, 100%. I'm becoming a Netflix bear purely because of the content catalog. <laughs> but it's just because personally, I don't like the catalog, short it. <laughs> but it's been bad for like four months. Yeah, it's been pretty bad. I would, I can confidently say that if I were paying for my own, I would not have Netflix right now. I I, I'd go HBO, HBO Max. I'd go HBO Max uh, if, we're, if we're working on a budget. But Love, they got Love Island in every country now. That's huge. I mean, that's. I mean, how are you going to miss that? Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it. Uh, thanks again to Jason Greenwald for coming on. Thank you for listening. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the, in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. 